0: Humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 217, and I had a conversation with Elizabeth Elkins. She is the author of Hidden History of Music Row, along with Vanessa Oliveres and Brian Allison. There's a forward by Kix Brooks of Brooks and Dunn, and their book drops August 31st. You can find it on Amazon and, you know, wherever you get books and things. Uh, Granville Automatic is the band that Elizabeth is in, along with Vanessa Oliveras, and they have an album dropping on September 11th called Tiny Televisions. Uh, Elizabeth is also in the band The Swear, so she's got a lot going on. Historian, songwriter, performing artist, writer exceptionally bright, interesting woman. I've known her for quite a while now. Uh, She's one of my most favorite people, and I think you're going to find out why when you hear this episode. We talk history, uh, Music Row history in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, We talk about ghosts. We talk about music and songwriting and the process of writing the book, uh, Hidden History of Music Row, And we talk about statues and the Confederacy, all sorts of things. It was a really interesting conversation. It went all over the place. In other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Facebook and on Instagram. My personal social media, Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, can be found on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I try and keep all that content different. Uh, for your viewing pleasure, rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's really helpful to get those reviews and get those ratings. So please, if you have a few minutes to spare, uh, do that. I would greatly appreciate that. If you want to know more about me and the other things I do, visit SusanRuth.com. I have everything from music to any kind of acting things coming up. I was just in a serial podcast called Sentinels I talked about it last week it has dropped uh, you can find that on Podbean and it's a sci-fi adventure in space it's really cool i had a blast doing it it's written and directed by Mike Desa who's going to be an upcoming guest on the show uh, really fun guy, fun projects. <laughs> so, definitely check that out if you're into sci fi. On the HeyHumanPodcast.com website, you'll find all sorts of information. Most especially, I'm very proud of the links page. I curate it for every episode. You're going to find books and movies and articles <clears throat> and information about my guests on each of those episode links sections. So, definitely check that out. If you like music, go to iTunes and look up Susan Ruth and there I will be and several of my records. Okay, let's get into this. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, be well, be kind to each other. And uh, yeah, here we go. Elizabeth Elkins, welcome to Hey Human. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. It's really great to see you. It's been way too long.
1: Absolutely way too long. It's nice to see a human in general right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, How long have you been in Nashville now?
1: I've been in Nashville, living in Nashville for five years full-time, um, but I have been in my house in Nashville for about 11 weeks right now. So. Oh,
0: you moved again? Oh, <laughs> no. You, you no mean, I, oh, you I, mean you haven't it. left your house. <laughs> I haven't
1: left my house, correct. <laughs> Doing
0: a lot of reading? Uh, a good bit of
1: reading, a little bit of writing. Um, you know, a little OCD cleaning that seems to be happening a good bit, um, but definitely some checking some books off my, my list, um, and yeah, and also just uh, working a little bit as well. All right, let's get going. So, tell right. me where where did you originate? I originated in um, the once sleepy suburb of DC, Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I don't remember it. I moved by the time I was a year and a half. We were gone. Um, so uh, my dad was in the military and I grew up all over the world. So um, I went to about 11 different schools in 12 years and ended up my dad's last assignment. We were in Belgium for part of my high school and then we ended up at Fort McClellan, Alabama, which was quite a shift from Belgium. And then that led me to going to school at Emory in Atlanta. So I spent about 20 years in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: When you were going from what, what branch? I assume that's the that Army then? He's Army, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did he have a specialty?
1: He was. He was a judge advocate court. He was the judge at the bases. So I would go as a kid and sit there and watch him with the gavel in hand, bring down the sentences. So yeah, that was his, he was airborne as well, but, um, was, I had the last three assignments. He was the, the judge at the, at the base.
0: Wow. Is there anything that sticks out to you as far as a memory of a, of a court case? Um,
1: no, I, I mean, I didn't go that many times. I just remember my dad is a very soft-spoken, he's a real big guy, he's like 6'2", you know, two-two 240, big guy, and very soft-spoken, very deliberate. Um, so I just remember more that he just kind of seemed like this very uh, kind era of authority. But, you know, later on, as I, you know, once I got older, he told me about some of the cases, and obviously you don't really have trial by jury as much in the military. So... Um, yeah, I just kind of remember him, you know, those being very quiet, nothing outlandish in the courtroom.
0: How was it to be raised by someone who not only was military, which comes with its own very particular set of rules, but then also a lawyer that becomes a judge? That's a that's that's a whole other set of rules. It's a, <laughs> an enchilada baked in a taco wrapped in a quesadilla. <laughs>
1: well well, my dad is an interesting guy because my dad's the guy that got me into music he was the one listening to Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and he has my dad has written a book granted it's on fishing and he was an English major at Virginia Military Institute so he's the uh the poet military guy which is uh funny so no he was not the disciplinarian or the authority in my household that was all my you know tiny little mother was running the running the roost so yeah I think I got my love of uh now my mom's side of the family is is the musical side but he's the ultimate fan he's the guy that knows everything about the Grand Old Opry um so I got my appreciation and uh, and love for um, music from him as well as just literature. He's always handing me books from the you know read this, read this, read this. So
0: I love that. My dad's like he's like that too. Isn't that fun? It's it's nice to have that uh, communion and to be able to talk about books with our parents. And yeah. yeah, absolutely. We still do. We'll call each other just saying,
1: "Have you read this?" or you know, recommending books to each other for sure. So I'm very thankful for that.
0: You were fostered then with the idea that. Uh, learning and curiosity were healthy
1: oh absolutely um you know we're not a math family so i was raised with if you can't do the math don't worry we can't either here's a book to read so um yeah absolutely always about about creation and and art and he's a bit of a painter too um so I did I was very lucky that 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 was not with a heavy hand at all but just a part of my childhood was reading and creating and that was just the way it was so I know that that's just a gift that I was given
0: do you have siblings
1: I do have a younger sister um she's a veterinarian um but also a writer so you know I think she got that as well but chose the path of um we grew up with horses too and she kind of chose the path of working with animals
0: oh lovely When you went to Emory, did you already have an idea in your head as to what your trajectory would be?
1: You know, I went in thinking I ironically would do, you know, the doctor, lawyer kind of thing. But it it became really clear to me even my first year that I just that that, and maybe some of it was laziness. That stuff was hard to me. um, And English was so fun and history was so fun. And and, you know, classics classes were fascinating. And I wanted to take art history. So I you know, whether it was a lazy choice or not, I went with, the you know, the English history path And, um, so no, I don't think I knew, I knew at that point I wanted to be, be on stage and writing music. So I think I let that really dictate my choices every time. And I don't, I mean, looking back, was that wise? I don't know, you know, but I did, I even went to grad school because it it would keep me from getting a job. I still had time to do music. I could go take classes two days a week and work on music. So I think I made more decisions based on, I know I want to create songs and write more than anything else.
0: And did you, you study music or did you study history in grad school? Uh, in grad school, I studied, um, journalism writing. Oh, interesting. Mm That's probably been quite the help in what you're doing now.
1: I think so. I mean, for when I first finished grad school, again, it was like a time period where, you know, working from home was not at all discussed and, and you had to go do nine to five in the office somewhere. And I wanted the freedom to tour. I wanted the freedom. I just, you know, kind of like being my own boss. So I think I thought being a journalist, I would have more of that. And right after grad school, I did spend about two years just as a freelance journalist working for different newspapers and magazines, and it just wasn't consistent to pay the bills at all. You know, I was running up dead, much like being a songwriter, and I ended up taking a job then in, kind of in communications and marketing back at Emory, which was a pretty flexible job, Um, but the original intent was how can I, you know, how can I make a living as a true writer, creative um, which, you know, that carries its own set we could discuss that for an hour alone. Should your creative pursuit pay for your life? I, I don't know if that's a wise path either. You've I'm sure you've um, you know, looked at that yourself as well. Well, I feel
0: that it it has in history been been something that, that does, but I wouldn't say that it is set up to do so now. Yeah. Absolutely. For a very tiny, tiny percentage. One does not pursue the creative arts these days and maybe not ever, but especially these days, unless one truly, truly has both a passion and a sickness for it.
1: (laughs) Very well said. It is, you know, every time I've thought I'm going to walk away, I'm going to walk away. And I start really looking into that and what that looks like. It's just an anxiety attack. I don't know that I could, even though my rational mind says hey, you're fortunate, you went to school, you could do this kind of work, you could, yeah, but, it, yeah, it's, it seems terrifying to walk away from it. Yeah. It, and, that's, getting that's, older is weird, too, you know, just how do you, especially in music, how do you deal with getting older, especially as female in the music industry? It's like, really, at what point does this become silly? Um, so, no, I, I'm, I examine that probably too often.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the rock and the hard place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> The rock, and, the rock and roll in the hard the place. The rock and roll in the hard place. I love that. Uh, when you were getting into history, which I think is sort of, well, not even sort of. I think that younger folks that are into history is maybe more of a rarity, both because they're really living in the present. And mm-hmm. we talked a minute before we got on air that uh, about the idea that younger folks feel maybe they touch the immortal more than as you get older and see that it's not forever. Um, but history is such a deep part of our psyche, whether or not we're aware of it or not. We can see that now more than perhaps ever. And yeah. uh, how did you, what made you have that be your thing? Do you think <clears throat> what drew you to that as a younger person?
1: I think initially it was the stories that brought me in, and I do come from on both sides a long legacy of military men as far back on, you know, back to great times, eight grandparents fighting in whatever war it was at the time. So I grew up with these stories from history that were very tied to war. So I heard about my great-great-grandfather in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and I heard about my grandfather landing on the beach at D-Day. So I heard these stories, and they were just so much about, you know, you talk about stories being carried in your DNA and and, and memory being carried in your DNA. So I think I found it fascinating, but I resisted it at first because my dad is such a military historian by uh, just as a hobbyist that's most of what he reads but I allowed myself somehow to get very interested in World War One, and I think because at the time I was very passionate about lost generation writers um, you know I had my moment of wishing I lived in Paris in 1920 through 25 and I think that led me to want to understand why they were the lost generation what, where, why you know Virginia Woolf talks about the world changing in 1910 and why did the world change in 1910, right before the war? And, and then that ties into Stravinsky and Rites of Springs. And all these things suddenly kind of came together for me in a fascinating way, that history was not bland at all. It was the reason there's science. It was the reason there's, there's art. It's the reason there's music. And so it became more of, I think, a curiosity to understand and to make informed decisions now. Um, but yeah, I was I, I resisted it through like 14, 15, 16 years old. And then I started to really embrace it. I would say war by war to begin. Um, oddly, World War I just couldn't, you know, everything John Keegan wrote I was reading. And then that got me into the American Civil War. And I resisted caring about World War II. You know, I went, weirdly, it was war that started my fascination. But um and then it led to, I think now I'm in like a five-year fascination with the, the Spanish conquest of North and Central America and, and also the, the Fremonts and the Kit Carsons and sort of the expansion into the American West. It's like my constant, I think it's because one, it, it's just, it's a connection to everything emotional too for me. I mean, everyone's been through all these different things before and how did they handle them? Um, it's also a way to, I'm a very anxious person in some ways, it was a way to escape that anxiety and kind of live through these other stories and times and how would I have reacted? So, um, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what that first trigger was, but it definitely started with, um, with World War I for some reason.
0: And you still, to this day, that's, I would say your favorite war, but to this day, <laughs> that's still the thing that, that sort of rocks your world the most, right? World War One,
1: yeah, I think that that time period certainly rocks my world the most. From about eighteen eighty-five till about night, till about the the stock market crash in twenty-nine, that period is fascinating to me.
0: How does knowing so much about where we've been? Uh, how does that make you feel, especially for a person that does tend to anxiety, uh, for where we're going? You know, in some ways
1: it makes me aware that the, in particular, the political turmoil we have right now is not new. I mean, there have been, I mean, there's been people punching each other in Congress and hitting each other with sticks. And I mean, we've certainly, we've had, we had a very, like growing up through the 80s and 90s. Now I feel, I think I feel more aware of how, even though there were foreign wars at that time and there were, it was, for the most part, a relatively calm period of history in the United States. You could fear the end of the Cold War in the '80s, maybe, but um, I remember, ironically, I just got back from tour in Texas, um, February, 8, March first, and pulling in my driveway, and I ironically remember thinking because I was looking at all the for sale signs on the houses around me in Nashville, which has just had this insane growth and boom, and I remember thinking, wow, this has got to be. a pretty long stretch of time in American history where things have just been going really, you know, on the surface level, calmly and well, and the market is booming. And this is just kind of weird. And I remember thinking that and little, of course, little did I know, you know, the world would change on a dime pretty quickly thereafter. Um, but it, even with, uh, you know, even with 9-11, it, it was, it it didn't impact every single day everyday life like what's going on now is doing um so yeah i think i think it gives me perspective and it makes me try to um think about what's going now on now in the context of history and looking maybe for some answers in that and not jumping to any sort of trendy twitter opinion Twitter, twitter is a dangerous place right now i swear but I think I just try to be as informed as possible. and it and you know, I love a good debate in general, but it, it I think the knowledge of history helps me be as informed um, of situations like these and you know, from science to politics to whatever. How is it? what's the outcome been before and what have we seen before?
0: When you realize that we have been here uh, so many times, <clears throat> I think about that even the fact that we are living through a pandemic and all that that entails and then you know just go back 100 years sure and then fast go back 100 years and fast forward 20 and we're right back in a war and right back in uh, the norm to how sure. people are are comfortable it's it's interesting to me too that we can truly get behind a war that involves something tactile but it's very hard for us to to see this as a war in and of itself which sure. it is it's you know it's- oh absolutely
1: is and looking at the difference in the way the United States reacted to um the Spanish influenza versus the epidemic slash pandemic in 1968 and how extraordinarily different both of those are to what's going on right now um you know and also looking at the role for me I have, it's been difficult to put the role of the creative in, in particular, um, the Spanish influenza and Right now, it's difficult to go to say, what good does me writing a song or a book or loving a painting do with the world right now when, when this pandemic and, and level of death and despair is going on? So, well, But people, then I look back at the Spanish influenza, and I think this is when some people were creating some yeah. of my favorite pieces of, of right. work. So yeah. very complex to wrap my brain
0: around. And in there. the bubonic plague. And in the, I mean, that is, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because in times of Great Depression, <laughs> things that that do well or entertainment and alcohol, right? Yes. Historically. And I think about the fact that, as you say, so much beauty has been creative out of chaos and it's been that way since forever. Yeah. And it is hard to not look at it and think, and I do this all the time. I think, what's the point? What's yeah. the point of any of it? It seems silly But then on the other side of that, when I hear a good song or I take in a beautiful painting or read a a book that takes me somewhere else, I think, well, thank God someone did this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it, it depends on your definition of what living is, I think, in a way. Are you are if art is a part of what makes you feel connected to whatever this this is? being human and being alive is, is that the feeling you get looking at a painting or when you finish a great book or when you hear a song, when you fall in love, when you look at the stars, all those things. Now, that may be my belief and I'm having to examine, okay, what is it, you know, life is clearly very mutable. So what can you do to feel like you're living? um and if you if you're and this is where Susan is interesting to me I realized my life to feel like I was living it was creating songs it was traveling and playing those songs it was traveling and exploring new places that were inspiring it was you know you know sitting down at at a restaurant and having a great drink and a wonderful conversation with a good friend those are all things other than the creation of the songs that are not safe to do right now and that's been a little bit of a how did I manage to set up my life in a way that almost everything that made me feel um, inspired, compelled, like I was living, those things are now dangerous. And so that's, that's odd to me. Um, and it's also strange to see <laughs> my parents live on a 40-acre farm, and I, I don't feel safe going there because they're in their 70s, and I you know, haven't figured that one out. But their life hasn't changed that much you know and that it's interesting to see did i make an error somewhere along the line is this living closer to the earth the wiser choice so yeah those are the the big issues that i you know that i'm enjoying over a coffee every morning
0: so yeah i mean i completely understand that i always have said oh i'm an uh, extroverted introvert that i cherish my alone time to a fault really and now where it's imposed upon me i I'm like, oh, I miss being touched. I miss being in the hustle and bustle of it's easy to be uh, comfortable in your in your aloneness in the midst of the cacophony of a restaurant or a movie theater or you know whatever, or walking through a market. You're alone, but you're not alone.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like my role in life and somehow this sometimes sounds egotistical, it's not, but I see myself as the observer. I just love to watch. That's what I love more than anything. It's where I love to listen and watch and, 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 and experience it as an introvert. And so, yeah, that's that's difficult <laughs> to do right now, safely, for sure.
0: Yeah. Well, when you started the musical part of your life, you, you've you had great success thus far. You've, you've had cuts on artists and you've mm-hmm. toured you've been in some fantastic bands including the one you're in now Granville automatic and you, you have another project don't you right now
1: I have sort of rebooted my punk rock band which uh, it's called the swear so we did uh, it, it wasn't gonna be a solo record but the guys the original rhythm section got by together with me so yeah we're 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 doing a little punk rock too
0: love that and you, began to really dig into the nashville history now was that something that you had always been intrigued by or did that come when you moved there
1: that's a good question um i think it started with i i guess and this goes back to your original question too for me maybe some of this trigger of history was when i was in ninth grade i was in north carolina and that's when i remember my dad sitting us down and saying our next assignment is belgium so leaving north carolina going to belgium um and starting school. And I remember walking to school and it was an international base. I remember walking to school and this, this moment I actually was walking home. And I remember thinking, I don't know anything about this new place at all. And so I, I think that did trigger, I, I started writing a lot then. So that triggered, I need to know what, wh- you know, the land I'm walking on, what's happened here. Um, and then that continued when I moved to Atlanta Um which is a city that has hid its history extraordinarily well. They're sort of the masters of deception in, in city planning in Atlanta, uh, which can be said of a lot of the South. But I, I got very fascinated again with understanding Atlanta's history, in particular in terms of sh- its geography and its city planning. So I never thought about how that touched to music at all. That was just something that was interesting to me. I love to talk about it. I love to read about it but when Vanessa and I started writing songs I was writing punk rock songs having a, a blast touring the country in a rock band we were you know had those little close moments to getting record deals back when record deals were big and I started writing a little bit With Vanessa, uh, my band was taking a break, and she was the one, I have to give her credit for pointing out, you're so obsessed with history. Have you ever thought about using that as inspiration for song? And I thought, no, I I never have. And I was reading a book called Mustang, um, The Saga of the Horse in the American West by Deanne Stillman, who actually lives out there near you. And it was just such a fascinating story, and here I am, a longtime history person at that point, a horse lover, and I knew nothing of this history. And every page was something I didn't know. And that, and I started kind of trying to write a song about that, and it became the song Blood and Gold that's on Granville's first album. And Vanessa was like, this is cool. We knew we wanted to write story songs, but we weren't really looking that far back for story songs. And then we started digging into this Perspective, you know, we started writing from really weird perspective. She, she got into writing from the, the perspective of this piece of furniture that watched a house change hands throughout, you know, like 47 times in the civil war. I, we started getting a weird perspective and that became pretty fascinating. So with Nashville, um, you know, had been coming here on and off for a long time, but writing at, at BMG publishing and driving into work to write every day. It was it was really, we were in the middle of writing, we had made a record in Brooklyn and we were in the middle of writing an album, which I hope we will put out. We have all these written albums and not, no budget to make them, but it's called Forgetting New York and it's all these lost buildings of New York and these stories that came from them. And, uh, you know, Vanessa goes, wait, look at, look at the skyline. And I was like, oh shit, yeah, look at the skyline. And there were, you know, we counted, you've seen it probably 23 cranes and it was suddenly what what's nashville losing and why is it losing it and that led to um the record radio hymns which which is very obscure stories and they they really lended themselves and maybe this is true of nashville in general to this kind of secret nature a lot of um deception a good bit of of lying and cheating and drugs there's a lot of weird Nashville stories they for the most part redemption is a theme too but you know that that and that led to actually you know writing a book about Nashville's history which is something I never thought that that would end up happening but it was organic the stories I I do firmly believe and I you know I'm a big believer in ghosts and spirits and, and energy of a place I think that if something wants its story to be told, it sort of finds its way to something that will tell its story. Uh, I've seen that happen over and over again. And I have, um, you know, I still owe a few places stories that I promised them. Um, But I do believe that it it was just, it was out there saying, Hey, the city is disappearing. What, what happened here? What, what's being lost? Um, So that's, that's where the Nashville history came in. Uh, When does the
0: book come out?
1: The book comes out August 31st from the history press.
0: And it is called The Hidden
1: <laughs> Very nice. It's called, <laughs> it's called "The Hidden History of Music Row." and um, Vanessa Oliveros who's in Gramble Automatic, and I wrote it with a guy named Brian Allison, who is a historian here.
0: How was that experience? I, aside from the, the, the beauty of learning about all these places, what did it stir up in you personally?
1: well that's a great question it stirred up the fact that I think um my teenage plans right before music started of being a writer you know I before music I always loved to write so it brought up um a question of how to move from writing songs and writing or writing I love letter writing so I write a lot of letters and I do lean toward more of a more of a poetic style of writing with that stuff, and how to move in to write history. So it really brought up a challenge to everything I thought I knew about writing. Uh, It also was a good bit about um, collaboration with two people who are very different from each other and very different from me, and how we all divided up who was writing what chapter, how the research was done, how we would time out getting to the deadlines, and how we would make three different writers sound cohesive for a history. Um, and also you know there, there were a couple arguments toward the end about what was fair game to put in the book because Brian's dad is Joe Allison who is part of the reason the CMA exists and um, he's very protective of a lot of Nashville's secrets and there were things that were told to, to both of us off the record that I coming as an outsider to Nashville don't understand why people don't talk about but um and there were a few things that, that, you know, I think there was only one line that he was like, this line's not going in the book. I know that we can't, it's just a gentleman's agreement in Nashville. And, you know, Venice and I came in like these gallivanting carpet baggers, you know, into the city, like we're going to just, you know, tell all the secrets. And I mean, I literally every interview, I'd sit down in an office of music row and I, you know, I don't really use a tape recorder. I like to just shorthand and, And we finished the interview and I'd say, you know, thank you so much for your time and I appreciate you being so thorough. And they'd go, now that we're off the record, and then I'd get 20 more minutes of stuff. And a lot of it was like, of course, of course, of course. And a lot of it paralleled those stories that we found for Radio Hymns and then the upcoming follow-up, which is tied to the book called Tiny Televisions. A lot of it was just these, it's just, there's a different approach to, I don't know that it's necessarily a religious hypocrisy. I mean, just, it, Nashville has a very deep South sort of fundamentalist vibe sometimes, um, and that behavior become you know any deviance from that behavior becomes a little more secret maybe than it would in other places, and and yeah, so I, there was a there was a lot of balance in I think the ethics of writing a book. And I think the biggest, for me, the biggest takeaway and the biggest thing I struggled with after I figured out how to have a voice as a historian, that was challenging. But the biggest takeaway was it is almost impossible to write history without the lens that you see, without your current time frame and your own experience with the subject. And that has made me rethink so many history books that I've read and the debate of, of you know everything from modernism to deconstructionism to um, revisionist history, because you, it's, it, you can't let go of what you've lived necessarily to inhabit these characters. And I ended up, after this book, signing a book deal with Vanderbilt University to write a book in particular about one of the city's founders. And it is, I am still struggling with the perspective and the look at this guy's life because it's impossible. We don't know, we do not know why he made the choices he made in 1782. And it is so hard to separate yourself emotionally from your own experience to clearly write about why did this guy choose to do this? So I think that was the biggest thing is how do you get distance and um, perspective perspective, um, and separate that from your own life. I think that, that that's challenging to do because you go into a history book for most of the general thesis of why you think something happened. So what informs that thesis? That's, that's what really struck me.
0: Well, I think about the history books that I read in ninth, 10th, 7th, 8th grade, and what I know now, and I think, wow, it was all wrong. Or if, oh. if it wasn't wrong, it was, as you say, buried in secretive uh, stories that are so important. And it, it pains me, especially as a storyteller myself, to know that so much of our history is shrouded in secrecy. And what good comes of the darkness? It, it, the only good that comes is when light is shined in those places. And we repeat things consistently as human beings. Unfortunately, we perhaps repeat our mistakes louder and with more veracity than our, than our successes. And it's so frustrating. And so when I hear you say like, oh, there are all these secrets and I get it, especially in a seeped culture, you know, Southern Baptist and and, and uh, Protestant, you know, deep, deep-seated religious culture uh, and where family dynamic is tricky at best, uh, to know that then not only do we miss out on knowing the truth of things, but we doom ourselves to the future.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, in looking at just U.S. history in general, I mean, to the victor belongs the spoils over and over again. One of the best books I've read is a book called um, The Journey, A Journey Long and Strange. And it is basically why and how we have erased the Spanish colonial history on the East Coast. Why we all think Plymouth Rock? Why we all think Jamestown? We don't think Port Royal. We don't think St. Augustine. And why? Why do we not? And and um, I forgot his last name. His first last name is Horowitz, uh, and he just died recently. Um, he wrote "Confederates in the Attic," but he also wrote this book. And he basically travels to all these places and just walks in bars and walks in restaurants and starts having conversations with people about what they think the history is, and it's fascinating um you know he he literally just he kind of upends everything you read in your seventh grade history book and then tries to give it a context in late 20th century america why it all has ended this way but and there's another i mean just speaking of repeating things over and over again i mean look what's going on right now in the navajo nation i mean what are, are we doing this again and again and again and again and that as, as much as I, I
0: just just, I just for people listening as to what you're referencing is the devastation that this pandemic is it's wreaking havoc through the through the nations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I spent a, almost a month on the um, Lakota Sioux um, reservation, the Cheyenne River Reservation, a few years ago, and seeing what some of the folks that I know up there have been posting about the situation there. And I just we just keep repeating our history, just ridiculously so
0: well i mean um, i look at my own family and the the history within one's family is even <laughs> subject to change depending on who, who it is you're oh, speaking yeah. with and, <laughs> and that's fascinating
1: yeah how come everyone you talk to in the america in in particular in the southeast goes oh yeah i'm part cherokee what why does ev- everyone says that and now that we have the the somewhat dubious genetic testing almost no one has this part Cherokee that, that everyone's family, everyone, I mean, there's a whole book in that probably, which is the Southern myth of the Cherokee grandmother. I mean, why does that exist? And why is, of course we know why it's always a Cherokee grandmother. It's not your grandfather. Um, but that's just a strange Southern story that is proving to be, uh, and part of this book I'm doing on the city founder is he had, a wife he brought down from French Canada, and he had a wife that he married here on the frontier. And there is a question of whether or not she was Creek or Cherokee or even um, Shawnee. But there was also apparently, I'm learning this, if a woman was single and over a certain age, she might just say she was native because then, then a rich Frenchman could come in and he was allowed to have a second wife who could be native. The you know we don't think about those things right now but yeah this his story is exact exactly the two lines of the family just fight every moment of what the real history is and the story changes from person to person to person so yeah that that one is going to be i'm i'm, I'm, I'm grappling <laughs> i'm struggling with how to write this on the right way so we'll in, see
0: in the one that you just completed of all the stories that you came upon and 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 wrote about, and I'm I'm going to include the uh, the others as well, the other two, um, that what what were you drawn to the most, and not necessarily the one you worked on, but through the whole book.
1: Sure, um, and the book traces uh, traces the history of music row from you know from pre white settler time up through you know hit songs that are being written so it really does cover a lot of ground you know what the story that stuck with me and i would have never thought this story would would really be a big deal was it's in the chapter about um churches and religious organizations along music row and there was even a cult leader there once it was like se- child sex trafficking and that's now Oceanway Studio you know he like kept his wife's body in a refrigerator in the basement where the reverb plates are um, but the story that really really struck me was about the um, the little sister's home for the poor which is um, now owned by Vanderbilt and did I lose you here? No I'm here
0: Am I you here, okay. Yeah. Right. Sorry, I sit very still when I'm listening. I <laughs> show people think that they that I've frozen.
1: <laughs> no, you're definitely frozen, but as long as you can still hear me, I'll back up a little. So, you're good. Okay, so the Little Sisters Home for the Poor, which um, is on 17th Avenue on Music Row. It was um, really interesting stories of, of, you know, folks that stayed there when it was the Catholic sort of, you know, retirement home, including some folks that fought in the Battle of San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. But they left once welfare started in the United States. A lot of those organizations didn't really have the need or the number of people coming to them. So it became a retirement home throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I talked to the builder, the guy who went in to buy the building and turn it into BMG and later Sony Music. And he said he walked in Um, to the chapel in the building. And he walked in to meet with the owner, and he said it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest in there. He walked into the chapel, and there were just these people slumped over in chairs or on the floor staring at tiny televisions. And that image stuck with me so much. And, you know, there's accounts of people jumping out of the fourth floor windows to their death, and it ended up becoming the title track and concept for the album that's going along with it because it was just to me this idea of this place that had really I think taken care of, of the elderly through the early part of the century to this point of desperation and just blank you know sort of lithium stares at television so that really of all the stories that sort of sadness and then knowing that Five years later, Sony Music and BMG were hosting number one parties and celebrations right where all people were sitting. So that really struck me as this kind of weird, you know, music music industry thing, too. So that story, I think, sticks with me the most.
0: There's a lot of stories of uh, hauntings in some of those big old music buildings.
1: Oh, yeah. The ghosts alone um, and some of the buildings have been lost, but there were certainly... I, you know, I personally think, you know, people think they're ghosts of music in some way, but the, we did find before the research on the book that the very last sanctioned public hanging in Nashville took place on what is now RCA Studio A. Wow. Um, And that happened right at the end of the Civil War. Martial law was declared. They captured um, some a band of thugs who had killed the son of a city alderman these guys were 16 17 18 years old half of them Union veterans half of them Confederate and the city was just so sick of all the murders and crime happening and they said hang them hang them and so the military tribunal said hang them and they set up a you know the scaffold just down from what was um, Fort Fort Houston which is now the musica statue and you know 30,000 people from the town gathered around the scaffolding and, and watched three men die immediately and one hang there for 10 minutes before he died and to me most of the people I talk about who've had hauntings are in buildings really close to where that happened um so I certainly think that's that's a that's a factor in some of the weird energy
0: uh, on music group as a songwriter myself I know the care and curation that goes into writing a song when you have subject matter that is there that you're then turning into a song does it make it more tricky for you or do you find it easier since the story is there, but to be able to put it into a three or three and a half minute mini movie.
1: Yeah. And that was one of the challenges moving from doing the songs to the book is, is the song has to be so precise and so short and the book, you have so much room. It's like a playground to tell the story. So yeah. And I think the key with that was truly the perspective and trying to, Find in some ways find a parallel to something in my own life as a songwriter, but no, I think I think it it was not as challenging as I thought it would be. I found it pretty mentally invigorating to try to get into the the heads of those people um, and those times. I, I find it it really interesting as a songwriter to try to capture the universal bits of emotion um, that when. When listening to a Gramble Automatic song, I hope that people don't feel like it's a history song, that they see themselves in it, and they may wonder more about what is the story. But we, we do try to write where it feels like it could be something contemporary.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I love, I love you guys. I think you're fantastic. <laughs> Extraordinarily talented. Do you think that you might dig into the ghosts of Tennessee? You know, we have one, two, three,
1: uh, yes, three albums that we have either almost completed or have half written. One of them is an album about Texas. The other is that Forgetting New York. But the third one is actually all about ghosts. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a partnership with our friend who's the Poet Laureate of Texas, Carla Morton. And we've identified a handful of haunted places around the country Um, everything from hotels to you know Walmarts to houses to schools whatever it might be and our plan is to actually stay in those places or spend time in those places and write the song there Um, and this comes from actually something that happened in Los Angeles Uh, Vanessa and I visited uh, the mission at San Gabriel I guess it's in Alhambra and we're in we usually kind of go our own separate ways when we're and when we're on tour we love to visit historic sites and stuff but we were both in there and there's something so strange about that place and i, I was sitting in the back of the chapel because i always like to just take a moment and listen and i i very clearly heard something say it was a female voice tell my story and this was probably 2011 maybe and i don't know what that story is but it was in the moment of knowing if you're open to being that conduit from these stories and these, these energies and emotions, there's so much there, it's limitless. Um, So I think putting ourselves in the position, not at all as ghost hunters, but in as storytellers listening for something. So that's planned um, as one of the albums. And I, I mean, I think in some ways we might be most excited about doing that one. So Carla would write a, a, write a poem. She's written many books of poetry and, and we would, you know, at least get a, a, a simple work tape recording of the songs in the place as well. So I, I hope love we, that. We,
0: Yeah. I'd like to read a book that uh, accompanies that as well. No pressure, but, you know. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> get that going.
1: <laughs> I'm sure that will, that's likely to happen.
0: Uh, how do you feel about the monuments and statues that are being taken down or being discussed about being taken down? And also, from your perspective, especially as a person in the South, you're not a Southerner, person in the South.
1: Sure, Um, I think it's a very loaded question. You ask a lot of very complicated parts to that question, which one is about people's reaction. So I think that as far as the the Confederate monuments in the South, their time has certainly come, if not way past come. And I think that putting those in museums, putting those on the battlefields and telling the story properly Alongside those monuments makes much more sense. I mean, I did grow up spending a lot of my holidays at my grandparents in Richmond, Virginia, like two blocks off Monument Avenue. So when I was a kid, I, you know, I the a lot of it was explained to me. Here's a this Robert E. Lee monument, this Stonewall Jackson monument, this Jeff Davis, and here's Arthur Ashe, and why was Arthur Ashe added, and what's going on. So I think as a kid, I, I did grow up around that in those dialogues. I think where, for me, things get really complicated is when we move past the Civil War, we start getting into, and I see more and more of this in just recent days, talks of how far do do the monument removals go. And I think for me, I started really having serious conversations with myself when there were some protesters trying to take down the Andrew Jackson statue at Lafayette Square recently. And I think there you get into a very complicated discussion of, of history through a modern lens, and how you tell stories from history, and how far you take the problems of history, and what is a problem enough to mean that some sort of monument or public incorporation of an image into our nation is a problem. And if you look at someone like Andrew Jackson, you can argue, we wouldn't be here having this discussion if Andrew Jackson hadn't beaten the British in the War of 1812 we also have a massive problem with the native american removal that jackson was a, was a major part of but you take that storyline and you take that you take that storyline and you take storylines of race and gender and even sexuality you can find a problem in almost every figure prior to 1980 i mean even past then but you look at Most presidents who prior to the Civil War were slave owners. You look at Ulysses S. Grant. He owned a slave. Uh, You know, Lee and Grant both let go of their slaves at about the same time in 1862. I mean, you start looking at really problematic things. You start looking at John F. Kennedy. Well, gosh, look how he treated women. Does he have, we gotta get rid of Kennedy. Um, Martin Luther King, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, not particularly fond of, of LGBTQA folks. So I think that, for me, it's very clear on the Confederate monuments, and I think most people agree on that. It gets much more complicated when we get into other figures, in particular figures out west. Um, you know, statues of the Spanish are coming down. The Spanish were extraordinarily brutal, extraordinarily brutal in their first conquest of America. Um, you start getting into problems with people like Kit Carson and, um, you know, Meriwether Lewis. I mean, they're they're problematic parts of history. That it is difficult to say, if if so-and-so lived today, would he have done this? Did he do this because it was the norm of his time? And I think those are challenging arguments when you move into other characters in history. So, I don't know. That's, it's a tough question. My biggest pet peeve is the lack of factual information from history that is rampant on social media right now. Um, And I think that bothers me the most. I think we all need to have informed, um, difficult conversations about this. But I do think informed is key. Um, And I think really, I think that it gets back to the old adage of history will repeat itself if you don't know it. And I think that's true. And I think we need to have discussions about the errors made in American history and the bad things that happened. I mean,
0: well, in history it has been whitewashed. I mean this, the history you and I studied is not the history that has been made clear today.
1: Absolutely. Uh, in particular in in elementary middle and high school I think yeah. you college you can dive into a yeah. little bit of correct information. But yeah, I mean our entire history is a very brutal one. The history of mankind is brutal. The history of mankind is is based on a lot of rap- raping and pillaging and conquest. And it's a- terrible, but there's also beauty in all of it, too. So I think if we really try to have informed discussions, and if every time I look at Twitter, I get so mad, because <laughs> on both sides, all across the political spectrum, there's just stuff that is like, where in the world did this information come from?
0: Yeah, the mob but- mentality doesn't do a lot of fact-checking, I don't think. Not a- and you made a good point. Sometimes something that we believe
1: is fact might be something incorrect that we were taught, in particular in elementary, middle, and this high school. This happened
0: to me last, last night. I was on Twitter, and I stumbled upon a, um, a Filipino Twitter, and I, I was reading a long I I kept going back to Google to translate it was a complicated process (laughs) but I was curious to what the conversation was because it was clear that there was um that it was sort of fiery and it had stemmed from uh, a a poster of Goebbels and uh, something that he had said uh according to the in quotes and all that and I thought oh that's really interesting so I read the 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 Twitter chain, the thread. Sorry, <laughs> and uh, and as I started doing my own research with it, which took me about a half an hour, I found that he didn't, in fact, say. I mean, it was a terrible and obvious thing. It was the to paraphrase is that uh, in order to get your side amped up, you basically blame everything on the other side you're the fear the loathing the um the death the disease the, all that and i mean of course it makes sense that people would take that and run especially when attributed to the you know head of the propaganda of the nazi regime but he didn't say it and in fact he said a lot of terrible things about people and you know and had a lot of It's centered around the big lie. I have got I've got air quotes going on. The idea of the big lie: you tell a lie often enough, and it becomes the truth. And so the quote that was being propagated on this Twitter feed, um, it is as if it took little bits and pieces of of all the things that were said either about him or by him, and reimagined. And there was an amalgamation. Still, there's quotes. You can't quote somebody if they didn't say it. Terrible human being, obviously. Sure. But um, this is where things get tricky because you have to. Now, at this point, when I see a quote, I'm like, fuck it. I'm just going to go see. And the historians are like, look, it's been attributed to him here and here and here and here and here. But there's no we don't have any proof that he actually said that specific thing. I am not defending this person. I'm just saying.
1: Sure. You have to. And you're talking about where history intersects myth and the power of myth. And I think that's, I mean, that's the heart of so much of what's happening now too, is how we, you can frame a story so many different ways and you, and a political size frame them for their own good, I think. Or evil. But I, yeah. Or evil. Yeah. Good or evil. Um, their own cause perhaps. So yeah, for me, the difficult part. And, and again, I think we, we talked about how I have tried to be so educated and just so fascinated by um, the story of uh, Native Americans in general but and if you haven't read we've told my great books to read Empire of the Summer Moon which is which is an incredibly written book about the Comanche in Texas and if you start looking into what the Comanche did I mean they would literally take babies and strip the babies of all their clothing tie them to their horses and run them through cactus fields
0: oh my God. I mean' that's gonna be a trigger warning yeah you. so oh my God. who?
1: We 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 just tend to go with this one narrative sometimes. What for good or for evil? People kind of start thinking one thing, and they aren't trying. And this is like me, the the hopeful historian, hoping people will really dig into things and understand that that the complexity of time of,
0: of a time period. But. Oh, it fascinates me. me that people are so tied up in there. It's sort of like when people watch football and suddenly it's their team, they're on the team, they're playing the game. That, that's sort of where their brain goes. Right. And it's, I'm seeing that with things like uh, the the flag, the, sure. you know, or the um, uh, there was something else that popped in my head when you said that oh, shit. Now I can't remember. Damn it. But the Confederate flag is a good example Yeah. Five years is not very long in the history of mankind, and yet, boy, people are real digging in. This is my heritage. This is who I am. This is... It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I I have a mixed heritage Of of, of, as far as the Civil War I have on my father's side. You know, they're all from High Appalachia, Pikeville, Kentucky, Pike County, Kentucky, um, I blanked on the county, named Wise County, Virginia. And in those cases, many people were... um, were sympathizers with the union, as they, as they were called, and very rarely were slave owners and and kind of resented the lowland plantation life at the time. And then on my mother's side, I have, you know, there's Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, where everyone fought for the Confederacy. Um, so, I mean, I, I grew up knowing that's a part of my family's story and hearing about that. But um, again, I think there have been some good points made that You know, five years of of, you know, do you need to wave a Confederate flag, which has become a a symbol of of hatred and and was representing the South? You know, in I guess various times, how do you? This brings us back around. I think the biggest point for me in history is how do you tell stories, and how do you how do you tell and honor all kinds of stories, and not get caught up in the backwards I'm not articulating this well but we can't go the civil war didn't happen it didn't happen we can't say that I can't say that you know I have you know a military lineage on both sides who fought in probably every conflict the United States has ever been in I can't can't just make that go away Right. Right. and it's complicated to me the key in all of this and again as a writer is how how you tell the stories and how you learn from the stories and how you understand the stories. And I don't think we can just keep going around with, with a machete eliminating parts of the past. I, I think we, I think by just saying, oh, that didn't happen, it's, it's very dangerous. And for me, it's just about a desire to hope people will just learn as much as they can. And that goes for all sides. I don't know. You know, you were talking about being on um, Twitter from the Philippines. I know zero about the Philippines. I mean so I think just learning as much as you can and trying to be just trying to be knowledgeable and form decisions out of that form your opinions out of that and I think I think the 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 art of discussion is being lost it is, is now true. it's now pick a side if you're not on my side you're evil if you're not on the right side you're evil and and there's no discussion there's no debate there's no talk there's no There's
0: just a lot of anger. It's interesting too. You mentioned the idea that if we take, I think of King George II. That you know, if that monument comes down, do we forget that? No, of course not. We don't forget who he is and what he represented to this country. And I I think I think about all that stuff too. Is in fact, all the toppling of statues and might highlight all these people going forward. Well, and how do you?
1: How do you deal with someone who is important in history? Who did horrible things? Who did? But what about someone who did something great? Well, and there aren't a lot of. But also, but also did horrible things. So let's let's use it as an example. Winston Churchill.
0: Great example.
1: Great example. How do you solve?
0: A that. problem like Maria, yeah, no Winston. How Churchill. do you solve a problem like Winston? <laughs> like I mean, Winston. How, <laughs> yes, Winston Churchill definitely problematic. Absolutely. So how do you solve that though? When you could argue
1: that he is the reason we have part part of the reason that the Third Reich was defeated. That's right. A big big part of that reason, but also openly racist. How do you solve that problem? And how do you? How I, that's something I don't know that there's been a way. Is it just? Is it just? Be I just don't know. I don't have an answer. These are the kind of things that they're keeping me up at night. Is uh, same, how do,
0: same. Okay. How do you solve a problem
1: like like Churchill? How do you solve a problem like Teddy Roosevelt?
0: Uh-huh. You
1: know, he's Teddy Roosevelt is a hero. He did some problematic
0: things. Sure. and I think to your point of the time at the time and what people's understanding of right and wrong and virtue. And I'm doing this because it's for the better of whomever is on my side, no matter at what cost. I mean, that is a very human trait, but it is weird that you're not going to find, yeah, I don't know how many Robert E. Lee statues are in America. I'm guessing quite a nice little handful why are there not that many statues to, to I don't know, uh, Henrietta Lacks, for example, or, right. you know, uh, the Arthur Ashe is a great example. I'm glad there's one. But do, do you know what I mean? There's plenty of uh, Frederick Douglass or George Washington Carver or where are those statues?
1: And I think that just comes from the people in power have not chosen those statues. Right. And exactly. that's where that's where something can change moving forward.
0: Yes, I agree.
1: And I think that's important um, that those kind of decision, those that decision making becomes very different when there's dialogue. So the good thing is there's now, there's there's people are looking at that maybe who didn't consider it before. Mm. Uh, but those are the. I don't know how to solve. I, again, I don't I, know. I don't how, either. But I, it's good to know, talk about
0: this stuff. I yeah. mean, what somebody asked me because I'm a big reader. As are you? And somebody asked me a while back when the um, controversy on uh, both Harper Lee and Mark Twain about the use of the N-word in their books. Sure. And um, I, my response to that is these are great works of literature and they represent a time and they're, they're speaking of social justice. They're, they're making social justice commentary within the context of, of what they're writing. And the thing is, is you're not walking down the street every day and seeing a Mark Twain book in that passage. You have to physically get that book and read it and make that choice. Whereas people of color, you know, what if? How would you feel? You know, it's there's not a lot of put yourself in that other person's shoes going on. Because if my history is is a bloodied one, for example, I'm half Jewish. My father, we've talked about this. My my father's family destroyed in World War II just wiped out, right? So when I watch, for example, any sort of Nazi movie or it's I get I'm devastated. was I there? No. Has it been several generations? Yes, but I still have this weird DNA reaction, right that's it's, it's, it's way over the top reaction. I mean, we're talking hysteria a lot of times and I myself think, where the fuck is this coming from? But it's in me. It's part of my blood. And I think about that if I'm, you know, walking past a monument that represents a time that destroyed my people, imprisoned my people, raped and pillaged my people, you know, that's going to be a visceral thing. A book, you have to go and make that choice. There is no choice when a public square is representing this stuff, you know?
1: Sure. And I think that that brings up so many thoughts. And one, I think, is how you know recent studies are showing that that great emotion lives in your DNA. Um, and I think, you know, that becomes complicated because, you know, we're all in, and maybe you ask about why are people harping on the Civil War? Well, you know, there may be those those remnants of all these emotions um, just in the same the same way where people feel, you know, all kinds of good and bad things. And I think the same way, you know, I, my experience with with World War II was having, you know, uh, we talked about too, my grandfather was at D-Day and um, then went through the Battle of the Ardennes and went all the way to Czechoslovakia. Um, and sometimes I, so you look to that and I'm like, if I feel, when I feel fear, I try to be more inspired by how he handled fear. You know, that's not even a a comparable situation, but uh, addressing more this idea of what lives in your bloodline and your DNA experiences of your ancestors. Um, And so absolutely, I can only imagine then walking by a statue of, of what that might feel like. I do wonder, and something not as directly comparable but also comparable I cannot remember a time as a child seeing a statue of a woman anywhere right <laughs> you know and I think that's something that there there's definitely definitely a lack of so much in in statues and then then I start digging into why do we need statues like like that's just a two thousand and three thousand year old history if not further back like what is the really getting into understanding what the need is for the statue. So I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I'm not either, but I love talking about it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think talking about it is good. And, and I, I really have spent many sleepless nights trying to f- figure out my own feelings, in particular as a historian, how to handle, um, you know, all these issues and, and what I need to learn and what I need to educate myself more about.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, and I think people are people are also. It's it's you're always sort of walking on eggshells to talk about it in some ways as well.
0: That's a problem. I think uh, that, I, I wish that wasn't the case. I, I understand where it comes from, but I think again I say this all the time. You have to shine the light on things and talk about it, and it's it's so important. And by not talking about it, we get into these sorts of messes where a lot of stuff that. Uh, that needs to be fixed, can't be fixed because nobody will talk about it. The elephant in the room at this point is you know, wrapped in barbed wire.
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a very true image. So yeah, the hardest part is trying to talk about it. And I do, I did like your point on, on Mark Twain. <clears throat> and I saw something recently come up again about Harper Lee, like in the news in the last couple of days, but it is a good point that you do have to seek that out. It's not something that, it is however what's taught in classrooms. For the most part, I mean, almost every high school yeah. student reads Huckleberry Finn. And
0: I would hope that with that comes uh, an educator who is willing to really dig in and not just let those words blithely go by. The, a, a writer like Mark Twain is very purposeful and properly very purposeful in, in the words they choose and why they've chosen them. And that, it, it, in my opinion, it shouldn't be just here's this book, read it, do your homework. It should be let's deep 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 dive why are they saying this what was going on at the time how is it comparable to what's going on now what what is the socio-political you know impact of this that conversation and there's not enough time in a day in a class in 45 minute class where the kids are are you know being engaged by the teacher there's just i don't know i don't know what the answer is
1: i don't either on that one as well because i think that that book is read so often um I think early in, you know, early in your life, you're exposed to that book, but there's got to be, uh, yeah, I'll look at ways to pair that book maybe with another book yes. and you together and talk about both. I mean, I think there there are ways to approach it, but, um, you know, like you, I don't think we should just ban those books and get rid of them. I think they're, they're you know, again, a learning tool. And also some of the, you, then you talk about the, the the Western canon and important works in, in building literature as a whole. But I think that's been expanding more and more. I do feel like there's, that is constantly evolving and, and,
0: and hopefully becoming more and more inclusive. Mm-hmm. I agree. And with writers that are outside of whatever a person reading it looks like. I, I say that often, read read books by people from all over the world. Don't just Absolutely. read people from your own country. It's it's imperative uh, to get a global understanding of every person's hopes and dreams and struggles. And, and also you miss out on so much if you don't read that stuff.
1: And that's so true of, and I was yeah. having this discussion with a friend recently who travels the world playing music. Um, most of it in India, South Africa, um, Europe, And she just talked about how difficult it is having the conversations with people who haven't left their home state or haven't even, or, or, you know, even that much less left the States and that perspective you gain by, by being outside of the States. And some of it can be gained by reading as much from across the world as possible. But yeah, she much just how, how your perspective shifts so much when you get that distance. It's like a relationship, you get away from it a little bit, you start seeing the good things and the
0: terrible things. Yeah. I think living an insular life is uh, is a, a burdensome because it leaves you with a lot of fear, I think but but I do wonder, is all of this
1: part of the process of democracy? I mean, I do wonder if part of figuring all this out is the inherent problems, and we are having to figure out how to solve them the right way, trying to trying to spin it positively here.
0: But
1: do you think that if democracy we, works? Do I
0: think democracy works? It, not, not in theory, but in practice. We're going so we're going deep here,
1: Susan, my God, damn it. I was just prepared for the monuments. Um, do I think democracy works? Uh, God, that gets into a question of some very big questions of we could discuss for two or three hours. Um, do I think democracy works? I'm going to hold out hope that it works. Yes.
0: Good answer. <laughs> Certainly fascinating and terrifying watching <laughs> it try. It's being challenged right now. Yeah, it is really being. <laughs> it challenged. is fascinating.
1: Yeah. And uh, what's funny is to watch how left and right kind of curve around. And they each accuse each other of being, you mm-hmm. know, what definitions of fascism and defini- definitions of communism and social are being bandied about in ways I've never seen before yeah. on the, the authority of the internet. So, oh,
0: Boy. That- and the internet, I mean, the most beautiful, horrific creation. Yeah, no kidding. No it kidding. is the, the, you know, the snake that eats itself.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I gotcha. it's a
0: dragon, perhaps, that <laughs> it eats itself.
1: Well, it's sort of, I just, I bring this back to Wikipedia, um, the People's Encyclopedia, because I feel like there have been times where... I have like just even in band stuff where something is just factually wrong on the page down to um, my bandmate's middle name. It was wrong, and she contacted Wikipedia and said, "It's me. Here's my driver's license. This is wrong." And the response was, "I'm sorry. Our editors don't believe that that's correct. We believe what the majority of the editors say." And I thought, "We've wow. got an. We've got a problem." Wow. So, something to think about when you trust wikipedia for your all your answers
0: holy cow i use uh i use wikipedia a lot in my links page uh because you know i usually read through my that seems that seems good but i don't deep dive into that even it's based on
1: majority thought which is
0: ooh. that i guess i didn't really think about it that way shit yeah, we're so screwed. Oh man, <laughs> now I'm problematic on top of all the other problematic things I am. I'm Wikipedia Maybe, yeah. problematic too.
1: Everything's all problematic.
0: Amazing. Yeah, no, I, I you
1: know, uh, that that was a real eye-opening moment for me when it when the answer really was well the the bulk of our that's insane
0: to me. The actual thing tell me about it.
1: Insane. I know college pro- college professors who have fought Wikipedia over certain things. And they can't win because the Wikipedia comes back with, well, this is the majority.
0: Wow. That's so. fascinating and terrifying. Everything is. Why is everything <laughs> fascinating and terrifying? Where I are guess you? Li- life is fascinating and terrifying. When things uh, go back to uh, travel ready, will you be touring with the book? Or will you just continue to tour with the music and then the book will be something that is a uh, adjunct to that?
1: Um, Well, the original intent was the history press has a pretty good publicity department and the original intent would be elements of a a book tour around the book. So I guess it's impossible to predict what will happen by August 31st. So right now I feel like Gosh, I have friends in Georgia and Texas and stuff who are playing shows already. You know, all of our stuff has been canceled through at least mid-July. So I don't know. I, I do look a little bit... I'm a big fan of the Airborne Toxic event, and they just put out a new album and, and the, uh, Mike Mike's memoir, Hollywood Park. And he's been doing a virtual bookstore tour. So I guess I don't know. I guess we don't know. I mean, the idea might be to try to um, potentially do more performances and, and if they're virtual perhaps on you know bookstore sites, um, kind of non-traditional music press outlets to really talk about this book. But yeah, the original intent would have been to do some 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 appearances like a book tour, but I don't know if that'll
0: happen now. It'll It'll come together. it will. Where, how can people find you, Elizabeth? Um, you can find me
1: in two places. Um, granvilleautomatic.com and then for the rock and roll side, it's theswear.com.
0: Great. And I will put links on heyhumanpodcast.com to find you, to find the, the books that you've been referencing and the people you've been referencing and all of that. Elizabeth, I, I'm,
1: <laughs> I love talking with you. Oh, I'm glad to talk to you and excited to be a part of uh, such a great podcast.
0: Honestly, I could talk with you for hours and hours and hours. You're the best. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.